You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to renewedheartministries.com and click donate. And that's why how we interpret Jesus' death matters. If we interpret Jesus' death as redemptive suffering, then his suffering becomes a life model for us, even if it means we die in the process at the hands of our oppressors and abusers. That's dangerous. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 452. Our title this week is The Myth of Redemptive Suffering, and I hope that'll become clear as we make it through, because our reading this week is John 1, 29 through 42. It reads, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who is coming after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the The one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, turning around Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus, it evolves through the four Gospels in our sacred canon. By the time of this last written Gospel, Jesus goes from being a disciple of John's to being someone John didn't even know. John merely prepares the the way for Jesus. And and Luke's Gospel uh, is also different. You can see Luke 7, 18 through 20 for, for Luke's version. But in this week's passage, John uses the unique language of of Jesus being the Lamb of God. In none of the other Gospels is this rhetoric used. And and, and this language, it developed late in the early Jesus community. And and it's a different way of explaining Jesus' death. What we have to understand is during this time, there were multiple ways of explaining Jesus' death that coexisted uh, alongside each other. And we'll discuss the image of of Jesus being God's quote-unquote lamb uh, more in just a moment. But first, though, it's helpful to understand some of the political context 
in which John was written. The early Jesus community was establishing its authorities and choosing leaders to rally around. Peter's leadership is the one that's referenced in in this week's reading. Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, they juxtapose Peter's denial of Jesus with Peter's confession. Uh, The the first in the Gospel stories is, uh, the first confession in the Gospel stories is actually Peter's, that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And we find this in Matthew, or sorry, Mark 8, 29. Um, but what about you? Jesus asked Peter, and whom do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And then this is repeated in Matthew 16, 16 and Luke 9, verse 20. John's gospel affirms this and, and expands on, on, on this tradition. So in, in John 6, 68 through 69, it says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We will, or we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In Matthew, Peter's confession uh, is even more significant. It becomes a foundation of of the community that was forming around Jesus. In Matthew sixteen sixteen through eighteen, uh, Simon Peter answered, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." Jesus replied, "Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my community, or or the word there is ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it." That's Matthew. 16, 16 through 18. So much has been written on the the wordplay in this passage and in the relationship between Peter's name of Petros and Rock being Petra. Uh, and through this story of, Jesus, uh, of Peter's confession of Jesus uh, as the Messiah, people in the early Jesus movement, they're endeavoring to establish uh, their preferred authorities. Peter's confession of Jesus' Messiahship was especially important to the community that recognized and followed uh, Peter's apostleship. Even though Peter was known to have denied Jesus, his confession um, was was significant and 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 duly so. So so there are a few minor differences again between the early gospel stories of how these men became apostles and and John's later version. In John, they begin following Jesus at the Jordan. In earlier gospels, they meet him in Galilee on the seashore. In John one twenty eight, um, all of this again happens in the Jordan. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Where John was baptizing. In John 1.43, it says the next day, Jesus decides to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. But in Mark, it was as Jesus was walking beside already the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So again, the story details are vastly different between these two versions of of calling uh, the apostles, and each story, each version, Version is is there because of the political competition or communities that were seeking to simply establish the authority of of their chosen uh, leader. So so now let's discuss Jesus being um, uh, the Lamb of God. This language of of Lamb of God. Christian feminist and womanist scholars have written a lot about how Christians have used this kind of language and the myth of redemptive suffering to harm women 
in their well-argued essay for God So Loved the World, question mark, Brown and Parker, they, they write, you can also read this in, in the book Christianity, Patriarchy, and Abuse, page one and two. Women are acculturated to accept abuse. We come to believe that it is our place to suffer. Christianity has been a primary, and in many women's lives, the primary force in shaping our acceptance of abuse. The central image of Christ on the cross as the Savior of the world communicates the message that suffering is redemptive. Mary Daly uh, similarly wrote in her book, uh, Beyond God the Father, page 77, the qualities that Christianity Christianity idealizes, especially for women, are also those of a victim. Sacrificial love, passive acceptance of suffering, humility, meekness, etc. Since these are the qualities idealized in Jesus who died for our sins, his functioning as a model reinforces the scapegoat syndrome for women. So one of the key intrinsically harmful impacts of redemptive suffering theology and and it being held up as an example for for victims of injustice and, and or abuse to follow is that it asks those being harmed to suffer patiently, to change the hearts or or to redeem those who are doing them harm. By its very nature, this theological thread, it puts concern for oppressors and abusers above concern for those being harmed. This can be and has been lethal. It, It makes people being harmed the servants of those harming them. Them, under the guise of of saving oppressors or saving abusers, and and again, you, if you this is a new idea for you, I want to recommend the book Patriarch Christianity, Patriarchy, and Abuse, especially page twenty of that book. Dolores S. Williams, in her classic uh, Sisters in the Wilderness, she offers a special warning too for Black women, as she writes on page one sixty one: African American Christian women can, through their religion and its leaders, be led passively to accept their own oppression and suffering if the women are taught that suffering is redemptive. Elizabeth Bettenhausen, she also has written a lot about this, about how uh, men have used a theology that defines Jesus' death as redemptive suffering, uh, how how it's been used to impose on women a a life of self-sacrificial imitation of, of Jesus. As Jesus followers, remember, Jesus is our example. And in his teachings of the golden rule and his his life of love, Jesus's life, it models a path for healing our world. And that's why how we interpret Jesus's death matters. If we interpret Jesus's death as redemptive suffering, then his suffering becomes a life model for us, even if it means we die in the process at the hands of our oppressors and abusers. That's dangerous. Bettenhausen, she she also challenges her readers with an exercise that she she once shared with her students in seminary. And and I want to also just note here that the account that I'm about to read, it involves intimate abuse. If that's, if it will just feel free to skip it, if doing so is better 
for you. You can skip ahead maybe 30 seconds. But uh, Patriarchy Christianity Abuse is where she records this again. It's in the introduction. Uh, she writes, Several years ago, I asked a group of seminarians to choose New Testament stories about Jesus and rewrite them imagining that Jesus had been female. The following recreation of the pas- passion story of Luke 22, 54-65 was one woman's knowing by heart. They arrested the Christ woman led her away to the council for questioning. Some of her followers straggled along to find out what was to become of her. There were seven women and two men followers. The men followers were there mainly to keep watch over their sisters. Someone from among the crowd asked a question of a man follower, Haven't I seen you with this woman? Who is she and what is your relationship with her? He replied defensively, She's a prostitute. She has had many men. I've seen her with many. The men who were guarding the Christ woman slapped her around and made fun of her. They told her to use magic powers to stop them. They blindfolded her and each in turn raped her and afterward jeered now prophetess who is in you which one of us tell us that they continued to insult her and again the student that wrote that his name was candace joyce uh, uh bettenhausen continues after this story was read aloud a silence surrounded the class and made us shiver Ever since, I have wondered, would women ever imagine forming a religion around the rape of a woman? Would we ever conjure gang rape as a salvific event for other women? What sort of God would such an event reveal? And this is a question worth asking. Would women have formed a religion around a woman being victimized this way? And to be clear, strong arguments can be made that the early Jesus communities were led by women. I want to recommend uh, In Memory of Her by uh, Elizabeth uh, Schusler Fiorenza. And, 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 and remember, interpreting Jesus' death as somehow salvific or redemptive, that was also a much later development element in the Jesus movement. Um, these, an argument can be made not only that the early movement involved women, but that the, the women interpreted Jesus' death very differently. As Jesus followers, we are shaped by how we interpret the story elements of the Jesus story, including Jesus' death. Abuse, oppression, and injustice, they can lead to a lifetime of pain if they are not refused or, or stood up to. They, they can destroy a person's sense of worth. They can destroy a person's sense of dignity, of meaning, of value. And, and, and some people die because of this. When we interpret Jesus' death as redemptive suffering, and then we ask abuse survivors to follow that example, we slander those who are standing up to abuse and injustice, and we then trivialize the suffering and abuse and injustice of those who are choosing instead to patiently endure it. How can we reconstruct an understanding of Jesus' death that is life-giving? Well, first, let's understand that this has been a question within Christianity 
from its very beginning. We aren't alone here. And there's also a long history of of answers to this question. I want to close this week by amplifying once again the answer that that Brown and Parker offer uh, by amplifying their work. Uh, I'll put a link to their essay that I'm selecting these statements from, that I've gleaned them from here at the end. Uh, uh, But but, uh, uh, here, here are their words. Jesus did not choose the cross. He chose to live a life in opposition to unjust, oppressive cultures. Jesus chose integrity and faithfulness, refusing to change course because of threat. Suffering is never redemptive, and suffering cannot be redeemed. The cross is a sign of tragedy. God's grief is revealed there, and everywhere and every time, life is thwarted by violence. God's grief is as ultimate as God's love. Every tragedy eternally remains and is eternally mourned. Eternally, the murdered scream betrayal. Eternally, God sings Kaddish for the world. To be a Christian means keeping faith with those who have heard and lived God's call for justice, radical love, and liberation, who have challenged unjust systems, both political and ecclesiastical, and who in that struggle have refused to be victims and have refused to cower under the threat of violence, suffering, and death. Fullness of life is attained in moments of decision for such faithfulness and integrity. When the threat of death is refused and the choice is made for justice, radical love, and liberation, the power of death is overthrown. Resurrection is radical courage. Resurrection means that death is overcome in those precise instances when human beings choose life, refusing the threat of death. Jesus climbed out of the grave in the Garden of Gethsemane when he refused to abandon his commitment to the truth, even though his enemies threatened him with death. On Good Friday, the resurrection one was crucified. Again, it's not the acceptance of suffering that gives life. They write, it is the commitment to life that gives life. The question, moreover, is not, am I willing to suffer, but do I desire fully to live? This distinction is subtle and to some specious, but in the end, it makes a great difference in how people interpret and respond to suffering. Again, I want to recommend the entire essay to you this week. Um, It's entitled, for God So Loved the World? Question mark by Brown and Parker. If you Google it, you, you'll find the PDF for this article almost immediately. Um, but I'll put a link to it in this week's e-site as well on our website at RenewedHeartMinistries.com. Heart Group application this week, number one, share something that spoke to you from this week's e-site or podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, has the practice of redemptive sacrifice or suffering, has that borne harmful fruit in your own experience. And if you're comfortable sharing, share your story with your group. Number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home 
for everyone. Thanks for checking in with us today. Uh, you can find Renewed Heart Ministries on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on your chosen social media platforms for our daily post. And also, if you enjoy listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, uh, like and subscribe to our podcast through whatever podcast platform you use, and consider taking some time to give us a review there. This helps others find our podcast as well. And if you'd like to reach out to us through email, you can reach us at info at renewedheartministries.com. My new book, Finding Jesus, a story of a fundamentalist preacher who unexpectedly discovered the social, political, and economic teachings of the Gospels is now available at renewedheartministries.com. Right where you are, remember, keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working toward justice. I love each of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.